Hello there. Who are you? This is the Zodiac speaking. Closer. Killing must feel good to God, too. He does it all the time. And are we not created in his image? We all go a little mad sometimes. After all, murder is, or should be, an art. I could kill you now pretty easily. Do some interesting things before anyone showed up. What are these films you can't wait to look at? M from 1931. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a must for anyone interested in the history of cinema, the history of horror, the intersection of art and horror, and anyone who is in the market for a trippy new sleep paralysis demon. The story, which has layers upon layers, follows the machinations of a mad doctor who puppeteers a somnambulist by the name of Cesare to murder. I wondered, and I wondered even recording this episode, if this film even belongs in the serial killer canon. I thought it does, but feel free to DM me your opinion. However, an undisputed must is M, a film that bridged the gap between silent and talking pictures, and without which we wouldn't have seven memories of murder or any other serial killer horror, really. A portrait of a child murderer whose crimes galvanized the entire city of Berlin to come together and hunt him down, the film is an unsettling watch even today in great part due to Peter Lorre's unforgettable performance as the murderer Beckard. Pamela and mine conversation spans both films, as well as the context in which they were made and where we can see their fingerprints all over serial killer media today. Both films are widely available to watch online and will hopefully get you in the right dark frame of mind to enjoy the rest of the films in the series. Remember to subscribe and review the podcast if you enjoy this episode and you can see what other films I'm going to be discussing over on our letterbox page, which I will link in the show notes. And with all that said, please enjoy our takes on The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and M. Pamela, thank you so much for making the time to come in and talk about some serial murderers with me. To kick us off, can you tell me what you think about when you think about serial killers in the movies? Okay, serial killers in the movies, there are a lot of them far more than I hope are in real life. I do I have two things I think of, and one of them is very simple and one of them is a bit more personal. I, mm-hmm. When I think of a serial killer film, I think of the cross-cutting. I think of that just irresistible, oh. you know, one lone person compelled to do something terrible and the cross-cutting with the chase. How do you find the one rogue element in society? And much as I find the crimes repulsive, cannot that to me is a a fine spectator sport the hunt for the killer you know whether it's whether you're you know like in psycho you're spending more time with the killer than you are with the detectives or you know either way around you know i cannot resist the thrill of the chase sorry 
in the first sentence, in the first episode of this series, and in the first question, Pamela, you've nailed the whole point, I think, of the serial killer genre. Because I found myself, I don't think I've flavored so much of our list of films mm-hmm. to cover in my entire life and definitely in the lifespan of this podcast. Because I kept going back and forth. And you've nailed it because a lot of the serial killer films are primarily detective films as well. They're about the chase. They're about catching the killer as opposed to the killer committing the crimes. Yeah. Sometimes both. And should I tell you about how a serial killer film changed my life? Please. <laughs> you will so delete this. Um, I will not. The film, you know, I was thinking about something for a long time when I was a mm-hmm. teenager. I was thinking about my concerns about the environment. I was thinking about ethics. It was a serial killer film that changed my life because it was watching Seven when I was a teenager that finally made me go vegetarian, which was a decision that a lot of 17-year-old girls make. And I didn't Mm. realise at the time that it would be such a kind of life-defining, you know, I am someone who has taken my values and is living them every day kind of decision. I didn't, you know, it's only several years later when you're still loving lentils that I (laughs) realised, you know, that was a big decision. And the way that the murders are presented in that film really Mm. disturbed me on such a deep level that I couldn't Mm. ignore how I felt about the eating of meat anymore because I believe that people and animals are sentient creatures and you cannot you can't treat them like they're just flesh uh you know I'm squeamish Anna this is like Mm. the the intellectual basis for my squeam and there's there's no you know I know that I'm flattering myself but yeah so I if I had never watched seven you know, I maybe wouldn't have come so fast to that decision that I was going to tread a little bit more lightly on this earth and save our little animal friends. I mean, my cat keeps wandering in and out, so I feel better. <laughs> that is such a beautiful and humane reaction to the film Seven. Oh, yeah. I mean, also... Very different from mine. <laughs> I mean, I would also say that Brad Pitt is very handsome. Uh, I have other reactions to that film. I've seen it so many times, actually, because my husband is a particular fan. But mm. yeah, there's a lot to take from that film, good and bad. But I, it changed my life. That and a, a vegetarian pizza. <laughs> did you did you eat while yeah. watching Seven? And I was like, I could just eat <laughs> mushrooms and feel no part of this and I'll be happy. I have no part. I want to have no shared guilt with Kevin Spacey in that film. I don't think of myself as a serial killer anymore. <laughs> <laughs> did you have perhaps before or after seven alongside um becoming a vegetarian did you have a serial killer phase like a lot of us maybe had or continue to have what like reading all the gruesome details yeah do you know what? i don't think i i mean i've watched a lot of serial killer films uh i mm. am exactly this age that i was a teenager when i watched seven and also i was a teenager when i read American Psycho, which everyone was raving mm-hmm. about. And I love that book and I love Breast Easton Ellis. But I'm so squeamish, Anna. You know that I read that book a second time and skipped the murders. So I'm almost the I literally, I, I cannot read that. I cannot read that. And I've read almost everything he's written. I, I want to read his new mm-hmm. one. And, uh, I've got it at home. But uh, I, I am a bit too squeamish. So I, I feel like I was always kind of avoiding the serial killer narrative. I'd start reading some story in the Sunday paper and it'd be like, oh, and then he killed and killed again. Oh, well, I'm nearly at the end now. I think they're impossible to avoid. They are, especially now, especially in the last handful of years. They've become 
unbelievably mainstream. Yeah, and I'm not really one for the true crime podcast. I listened to all of Serial. It made me feel sick. I'm, you can tell I'm quite delicate. I'm so sorry. Yeah. But, uh, so, so I haven't indulged in the true crime stuff. That said, my first book was about, you know, it did have quite a lot of Jack the Ripper in it. So I, can't, I mm-hmm. sort of go, oh, no, I have to go and read about this today. And you know it's quite fascinating. It is fascinating, particularly because it's all about the chase. Mm. And since he was never caught or identified, well, I mean, there's many, many theories, but the Jack the Ripper case continues to be about detective work. Yeah, and I think that that is so important in our idea of serial killers. There is this idea that they are just out there. We don't know why. And it's Mm. often about the idea that they are, we're either, they've been caught, but we're boggling at how long they went undetected, you know, like how many times they were able to strike or it's that fear that they're still out there you know um when my mum and people of her generation were younger with the york yorkshire ripper you know it was a huge impact yeah. on sort of women of like my mother's age and you know i talked to people about that and you, the impact it had was you know absolutely horrific so the idea that probably the most famous serial killer of all time has never been found that just really speaks to our really the really big deeper knees about this you know um people do crimes every day but we don't really understand we can't quite bring ourselves to understand to get close to why this one this particular crime happens no but i think we've the entire serial killer genre both in horror literary fiction true crime and everything else is kind of alongside the chase is interested in the question of why are you doing this and we have to deal with that with fiction i guess i mean you know mm-hmm. uh, whenever there's a film about the holocaust release people say should we tell stories about it and you think well how can we not how because we don't understand we have to understand we have mm-hmm. to ask questions about it it's the same with the serial killers you know i act all coy but one of the films on the books i read recently that i loved the most was boy parts by eliza clark which i'm sure you've read like seven times yeah like the female (laughs) american psycho you know it just comes back and you do wonder why why is this in people's imagination and why Mm. is this something that other humans do and half of fiction is why do other humans do this (laughs) and i think that's a good segue into the films that we're talking about today because both of them are sort of interested in the why as well as the chase that we were talking about but um i wonder i was questioning this myself for a long period but i wanted to talk about the cabinet of dr caligari but i wonder what you think i'm a bit undecided myself even though it's the first film that we're covering here so starting with you... um you know ambivalence <laughs> yeah I, lo- I, lo- I love to live in the gray area mm-hmm. as you know um do you think the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the 1920 German expressionist, German expressionist film by Robert Wien. Um, do you think of it as a serial killer story? I mean, not entirely, no. Because it's it's the serial killer theme is one of those things that you tick off. If you're writing an essay about Caligari, you say many, many horrible things fed into this. And the fear of serial killers which was was the thing that people were worried about in Germany in the 1910s and even more so in the 1920s. That is part of it. But the the state of Germany and the state of art and the state of the film as a, as a medium were so many other things that fed into the making of it. What it does give us is, I think, 
a fantastic metaphor for many other serial killer films, including the other one on this podcast. This like mm-hmm. unofficial Casablanca podcast that you've put together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, you know, with Peter Laurie and Conrad Veidt, which is the yeah, idea yeah. of the, the person who is completely, completely at the mercy of their impulses. This, there is no stronger image of that than of Cesare, the somnambulist, who is not just sleepwalking, mm. but is sleepwalking and is controlled by someone else. And then, of course, the layers and layers and layers that the film puts on top of that. The idea that there are people walking amongst us who are not, acting on their own, of their own free will is quite terrifying. Mm. And I've seen it credited multiple times as kind of one of the first true horror movies in in some places. What do you think makes it different from other horror films of early cinema? So other horror films of early cinema, you might have films that have uh, devils or skeletons or violence, or you might have, I mean, a really good one would be uh, literary adaptations like Jekyll and Hyde comes out yeah. at the same time, mm-hmm. or there's a there's a really good Frankenstein in the 1910s and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But what makes, I think, Caligari like a horror movie is that it uses film and film only for its horror. You know, it, it sort of seems to exist only on film and there's something quite elusive about Caligari. I don't know if it helps to think of it as a horror film. I mean, I, I'm very resistant to people saying, oh, well, it's art, so it can't be horror. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah, weirdly, weirdly, you know, it's <laughs> such a ridiculous attitude to take to any kind of film. But um, but what they were trying to do doesn't line up with what we might think the sort of um, the remit of a horror film is. And it f- I think it fits into a lot of concerns people had about what the film was, what the film could be, what it should be, what its relationship was to other art forms, and scaring people. Um, I don't even know how high on the list that was. Mm. Well, it's interesting when I was um, re-watching it, and I watched it kind of, I think watching Caligari, same as watching Nosferatu, is kind of a rite of passage for anyone interested in film history, but particularly anyone interested in a horror film. You know, you kind of want to see something from 100 years ago, and almost as a test, wonder, is it going to scare me in the same way, mm. you know, considering we have a hundred years of cinema and of horror films, the changing dynamics, the changing fears and anxieties, the new technologies, all this jazz. And there's something still very unsettling about Caligari for me. And I thought about it as, you know, oh, is this the first horror film? We love to do these mm. um, declarations and the first, the last and the most of something. But it's, it's probably, I think, the the first art horror Mm -hmm. in the sense that it is using all of these influences and techniques and um, ideas, but all of them are in service of one emotion. And I think one of the things that people forget when we talk about horror is that it is about scaring an audience and unsettling an audience. And that doesn't always, it's not always qualifiable or quantifiable as a jump scare or uh, an evisceration or something like that. Sometimes it's just a feeling. I think it creating a feeling over a sustained period of time, you know, Caligari is about an hour and a bit. Mm. Creating that unsettling environment over an hour and that eeriness maintaining itself for over a hundred years there's there's something quite unique about it in that sense it's not scary in the sense that say 
you know, the conjuring is scary. But in the sense that I think if I were to compare it to a more contemporary film, like Skinamarink was unsettling and eerie. And kind of the the basic idea of it, of, like you said, someone being either controlled or completely subservient to their impulses, that transcending through the screen a century later really unnerves me, even today. Well, it's, yeah, I think you make a really good point, because what's scary? I mean, what's scary? Well, you know, the monster behind the diner in Mulholland Drive is scary. You know, a jump scare, <laughs> as you say, is scary. But what's really scary is losing your mind, What's really, which is what happens in Caligari to so many people. What's really scary is coming face-to-face -face with your immortality. What's really scary mm. is having to do something that you can't bear against your will. And so it scares you with all these other things and you know these are perfectly good things to be scared by in a horror the idea that you know your life might end at any minute is basically the primary primary kind of focus of the scares in horror and that's what happens when people encounter this an ambulance you know how long have i got to live and mm -hmm. it turns out not very long at all and you know there's that always that moment i think in a kind of classic horror you know you think of you know my uh, my reference points are not as sophisticated as yours you know you're the kind of halloween when you come face to face with the person the creature that wants to kill mm -hmm. you you know you realize your time on this earth is gone that's the primary focus of the scare and this is what caligari does it says you know you have a short time on this life and you can't trust yourself you can't trust anyone else and Here's a world that looks like the real world, but also looks so far away from it that it's unsettling in every image. You know, mm. I think the kind of pity you feel is quite, you know, it's that um, pit of the stomach feeling. There's one still that's really popular from this film and definitely was the still that I had seen and seen and seen before I actually watched the film, which mm. has Conrad Veidt and he's holding the woman, Lil Dagover, and he's on that sort of narrow path very tilted zigzag path and he's kind of hunched over mm -hmm. you know he's the monster that's abducted this young woman but also you know he looks so pitiable and the world he's in looks impossible to navigate that is terrifying how mm. do you move from a to b in the world of caligari well you don't because there is there might be an a but there's not a b mm. or the b is kind of slightly squiggly and facing different directions and doesn't even look like a bee, but people are telling you that it is a bee. I mean, it, it, you know, people talk about the plot twist. This film yes. twists on itself. You know, if you twist a strip of film, mm -hmm. you've got a Mobius strip. This film begins and ends in the same confusing place. It could just keep going and going. We don't know what... We haven't, we haven't had that satisfying character arc. We haven't had the satisfying resolution that's been taken away from us. We, essentially, we realise that the madness just continues. You know, the... The trauma continues. Hmm. And just to put it a bit into context, um, how the, that twisting narrative of the film, can you put it for me a little bit in context of filmmaking of the era? Oh, okay. So, I mean, the... The, the film essentially has this very simple story, which is about... Um, a sort of crazy guy who looks like Schopenhauer, played by Werner Krauss, who ha has this sleepwalker, has a sideshow attraction, and he makes a sleepwalker, and that's Conrad Veidt, kill people. But we have this framing device, which has someone remembering us, telling the story. So we set it back in this world that would be, in a way, quite familiar to German audiences, this world of the expressionist stage, this world of a kind of art, architecture, and stage technique that is that is familiar to people from the 1910s, expressionism, transferred to film. 
But the framing device, which a lot of people take credit for, I mean, Caligari is a film where you realise, you know, success has many fathers. The people who claim to have made this film, quite, quite a long list of people, including Fritz Lang which is very neat for your podcast. Um, what? Yeah, yeah, no, he... I was not aware of that. No, no, no. Well, apparently he was um, down to direct it at first, but then he um, went off to make the spiders. And uh, he is one of the people that claims to have come up with the framing story. So many claims about this film, and they're often all, uh, often quite easily or not so easily verified or, or uh, what's the word, um, undermined. Debunked. Debunked. I love the word debunked. <laughs> Let's debunk what some long dead German said about the film that they made and I didn't. Um, so, you know, we have all these all these people involved in it and the, the framing device does confuse people. Um, a lot of critics always, whenever they saw, a, at this time, whenever they saw a film with a flashback in, they said, this is confusing and people won't get it. That's not so confusing. It's the fact that the framing story comes up with a neat resolution, an explanation for everything, and then complicates that further. So we have an ending mm. without resolution in the end. We just have the idea that People are trapped in their own delusions and no one really, no one is a reliable narrator. No one understands the truth of their circumstances. And you might be mad or I might be mad or someone might be able to make me mad. Um, the writers of the film were pacifists had bet, you know, uh, during the First World War and they said mm -hmm. that the film is about the First World War and that it's about the idea that men were sent to kill on behalf of other people. Some people said, oh, yeah, that's what you decided it was about afterwards when it was a hit. But it was a very popular thing. I mean, the First World War, soldiers in that war did feel that there was it was a pointless war and they were being sent to the front line for no reason. Mm -hmm. And it is terrifying. And then, you know, obviously we'd had the flu epidemic. And then, of course, you know, Germany was in a quite a, a poor state following the First World War. So the, it was a ripe time to pick up on all these themes of darkness and say, do we mm -hmm. know who we are? Do we know where we are and why we're doing what we're doing? And do we have free will? So, yeah, the, the twist ending is, is, an, is an addition and it's so essential to the film. And it also really complicates the, the figure of Cesare, right? Because even though he is, and I think, like you said, I also remember seeing a still of him, um, not the one where he's hunched over, but one of the close-ups oh. of Conrad Veidt's face with the really extreme makeup, the almost triangular mm. um, black marks under his eyes, so that his pupils, his actual eyes, look even unnaturally white almost and he's you know so skinny and dressed all in black and his hair is jet black and really flat it's this really phantasmagoric figure and he is the killer we see him murder in the film and he's like almost not um not really a person because we rarely see him speak he's under control of um the doctor but then with the twist ending He's just a guy leaning against the wall, with a flower. not really saying that much. With a flower. He's awake and he may be mad because he's in the asylum. I'm sorry for using mm. such a basic word. Um, you know, he may have difficulties, but he seems to be sentient. He seems to be awake and he seems to know what he's doing and he seems to have no interest in murdering anyone. You know, mm. he's a poet, not a killer. And, you know, <laughs> it's quite so a romantic figure. I mean, in the best serial killer films, and let's just say this is one, you do have a certain wrench of sympathy 
even fleeting for the killer. And I think Cesare, who isn't in control of his actions and may, when it's revealed, turn out to have nothing to do with the murders, if mm. they even exist. Uh, exactly. Um, you know, is is quite sympathetic, even though he looks uncanny. He looks, he has this striking look. I mean, Conrad Veidt had a lot going for him. He was a great actor. Great actor. Great cheekbones. Oh my gosh, the cheekbones. <laughs> oh, the cheekbones. And... If you ever would like to meet a man who's as good as his cheekbones, Conrad Veidt, lovely man, really, really a good, a good person, you know. He he stood up for what was right. Um, he stood up for the the Jews. He stood up for the gays. He stood up. He stood up against fascism in all of its forms. Uh, he was a great guy, and you know, and he's a fantastic actor. And yet, you know, this film he manages to give us all that while playing in the expressionist style and playing, as you say, a a creation, a being, a thing rather than a man. Mm. And it kind of begs a question and you sort of alluded to it earlier. And this is why I was wondering whether Caligari even fit in this season. We do get a series of murders, but are the murders even real? Do they even happen? I mean, do we get a resolution? Nothing in this film is real. Just to point that out, um, it's a fiction. But I do know—I do mean that in a slightly more sophisticated way. This isn't really a film. This is like a live-action painting. As I say, the film begins and ends in the same place. You can see, you can like touch the grease paint, like lick it off the screen. This film is so artificial. It taps into real feelings and real uneases, but at no, at always we know that we're watching a show in some way. It's a show that disturbs us, but it's very much, you know a falsity. It's very self-conscious in the way that it presents that. Uh, the expressionist style of decor is obviously very clear, but the expressionist mm. style of acting that Werner Krauss and Conrad yes. do. So um, there are no murders in one way, because we know that we're watching a crazy show about something that happened within a framing story, within a sideshow, with a madman. But of course, we get to experience the thrill of them as if they really, really did exist. And I kept talking about Braxton Ellis earlier, and the idea that someone might dream up a series of murders is obviously quite comforting, <laughs> I mm -hmm. guess. And I feel that the murders in this film are as real as anything else, you know? Well, because... You know, you say, is it comforting that someone might dream up a series of murders instead of actually committing them? And obviously, again, we're talking in the realm of fiction, but there is something also disturbing about being inside someone's fantasy life and their fantasy life being so dark. I mean, I mean, that is got to be like one of the horrors of if you lose your mind, you know, what if what's mm. left is just your worst impulses, your your you know your terrifying capacity for cruelty let alone you know neglect let alone actual violence well, you know what if all is left with you is all your prejudices and your hateful feelings the idea that you have full-on nihilism and you don't care anymore like what if you lose the part of you that we think of as human when you lose your rationality it's terrifying isn't it Ugh. <laughs> well, exactly but you meant you alluded to it earlier and i'd love for you to expand on kind of how you think the acting, the performances, particularly Conrad Biden and Werner Krauss, who uh, plays Dr. Caligari. And it's really much, a, it, there's other characters, but it is about the relationship between them at the center of the film. How does the whole expressionism of the film carry through into their performances? 
So you've got like this kind of like Frankenstein and the wretch kind of dynamic. There's something inhuman about someone who would do that to another human and there's something inhuman about the vessel for these crimes, right? So both the mm. master and the, the creation. And they are acting in a style that we would call expressionist. And, you know, everyone likes to say any film from the 1920s that was made in Germany that has a few shadows is German expressionism. And, you know, it's absolute beeswax. And even this film, a lot of people say, well, it's not really that expressionist, you know, because expressionism refers to a look and a style and to a kind of theatre. And they are acting in the expressionist style. You mm -hmm. will see so many actors come from the German stage and do a, a sort of a variation of expressionist acting in more naturalistic films or in semi-expressionist films. Um, I say that this film has got to be like 95% expressionist. I wouldn't worry too much about the bit that isn't. But those two performances, in contrast to the other performances, the other characters we don't care about so mm -hmm. much, are expressionist. <laughs> they are moving along uh, it's like dance you know they are moving to create yes. shapes with their bodies and shapes with their mm -hmm, faces mm -hmm. that are slightly uncanny mm -hmm. that echo the slightly distorted angles and lines that we see and backgrounds that we see in the decor i would say lil dagover's got kind of an expressionist face i mean especially with that wonderful makeup There's something really uncanny about the lines in her face but yeah conrad veit and Werner kraus are doing expressionism here and they do variations of it in other performances but this is this is pretty pure mm. and what do you make of the or how would you kind of describe the character of Caligari who is within the story of Caligari is the puppet master well I mean this is the this is the sort of the tyrant you know he he is the he's the overlord he's the master he's the puppet master is a brilliant way to put it and this is one of the things that people have found if, the, if you thought that Caligari was terrifying in 1920, it gets a lot more terrifying in 1933 and it gets even more terrifying in the 1940s because it's this idea that tyrants can control people, the idea that people can be misled by a bad leader, you know, and that is why, you know, Siegfried Krakauer wrote from Caligari to Hitler, the idea that there is this, that a dangerous character who can get enough people on his side can destroy a whole society because if you find these people that people are enthralled to they will do terrible things and i'm not talking about american politics but i could be you know or honestly I'm, i i don't know where this podcast is going out but let's just say that this week in britain we had a bit of this we had people in power saying terrible things in order to whip up a mob in this case but you know in um in Caligari, it's one person, but we see the crowd reaction and we see how one dangerous leader, one dangerous sort of charismatic man can, you know, provoke so much disaster in a society. Hmm. You mentioned Conrad Veidt's kind of uh, standing up uh, throughout his entire life to fascism hmm. and, and kind of for the right things, the things that we even today can, you know, know to be the right things, but people maybe did not know in the 1930s. Um how do you think this performance a lot uh, kind of affected or marked his subsequent career, um, both in Germany and then after he emigrated to Hollywood? Yeah, so he went to Hollywood and he also spent a lot of time in Britain. You know, he worked with Michael Powell and, and you know, we, we love him over here. Mm. Um, the, rea there was, 
the reception to this film, this isn't a story about how many people went to the box office and put up their popcorn. This film was received around the world quite often as the art film. So it plays at the London Film Society in Britain and who pops along but Virginia Woolf and writes one of the sort of defining essays on the nature of cinema. She really finds something fantastic on the screen there that she thinks is the future of this young art form. Of course, what she's talking about is a speck of dust on the, on the projector lens before the film starts. But, you know, we move on. But, you know, he is associated <laughs> <laughs> genuinely she's disappointed when the movie starts she's like that was amazing that was an abstract shape that, that struck terror into my being oh Caligari's pretty good though uh, it's fine but you know he's associated with this high peak of of art cinema and of course he kind of embodies something really sinister and you see this in other of his roles like the student of Prague the great doppelganger film the man who laughs mm. whether uh, you know the, the makeup that he uses has obviously been taken for the Joker who's quite scary quite prevalent in society probably a kind of serial killer in his own way you know so he's associated with these strong terrifying images of horror and of course you know He's got a German accent and German name. And, you know, so he plays Nazis. You know, he mm. is considered to be a great actor. I mean, it's wonderful to see him in The Spy in Black where he plays a kind of good character. But, yeah, he plays Nazis. And for someone who stood up to fascism almost, almost before we think of the history of, of fascism really taking root in in Germany, you know, he, he made different from the others from the first campaigning gay films, straight man. You know, he... He identified himself as a Jew, even though he wasn't, you know, he, he left Germany when the Nazi regime came in. He did, you know, he supported the, the Allied war effort. He did everything he could. But yeah, he plays mm -hmm. Nazis on screen. And that's partly because we think, you know, he's so great and he's so terrifying. I think it's a it's a good moment to segue from Conrad White to another actor who um, got typecast somewhat as as a killer or as a villain, despite not being one mm. um, in real life. Let's chat about Fritz Lang's M. Oh, no. oh, this is a movie, I have to say, like, Tavern of Caligari is great, but M, now that is a film. That is a, that's a motion picture. I honestly think I, I remember so well the first time I watched this and even like the moment I fell off my chair in horror like it's it's perfect tell me about the first time you watched M and specifically the moment you fell off your chair okay so I watched it like the perfect timing um you know when you you have things you should watch but you mm -hmm. also have the other things you want to watch so I was watching a lot yeah. of film noir at university because I was doing a paper on film noir god I must have been the worst paper ever written on film noir uh thank god that it was written <laughs> like by hand probably or if it's on a floppy disk somewhere, no one will see it um but I was also realizing this amazing thing which was that the modern languages library at my university and I didn't study modern languages had all these old films particularly silent films and I was like yes I can finally watch all the silent films I want so you can imagine mm -hmm. me watching film noir for work and watching silent movies for fun M just kept winking at me I'm in neither of your categories but I'm in both you know because Fritz Langway is so many great noirs and because it's just his first sound film and I remember thinking this is so sort of weirdly like illicit you know solicit that I'm watching this film but I thought well it can't be that scary and when the ball the little book girl's ball runs out from under the bush and the balloon goes up to the telephone wires I fell off my chair. I was like, this? He's already gone there. And famously, M doesn't show any violence, but it shows you that he has murdered this little girl. And it it really, it rocketed through my soul. I was like, this is a must watch. I, don't, I, I do not regret a thing. 
And it also shows you the amount of delight that he takes in abducting the little girls. Yeah, the the taking the little girls, buying them little toys and treats and enjoying that and not at any point, you know, you know, you watch it happen and you watch little girls say, oh yeah, I'd like that toy and like going along with him and you know that he knows what he's going to do to her. It's it's really chilling and it, the film gives you a lot of space to take that in. It doesn't explain it or uh, excuse it. It shows you the horrific impact that this has on the, the mothers who lose their children, on the children who are scared, standing stock still in the street while they're playing and uh, the toll it takes on him, which really affected me at the time. I remember thinking I'd never mm. heard anything like the screams that Peter Lorre utters at the end of the film. And um, I just thought, like, you know, if you're a punk rock band, you have to go on stage to the sound of him screaming, don't want mm. to, must. I just thought I'd never, never encountered anything like that in any kind of movie before. I remember being, I also watched it when I was at university, and I think it was part of some course. Uh -huh. So it was a must watch in the sense. Mm -hmm. And you know, you always, especially when you're kind of discovering film um, as a teenager, or young adult or whatnot, you're curious, but also a little bit... Um, above everything you know it's like oh you know oh i have to watch this antonioni film what a drag <laughs> i'm sure it um, won't be good people say it's good but you know yes. i'm actually i've got my own opinions so antonioni <laughs> you are on you you are on watch right like if you put a foot wrong oh jack nicholson is it well okay no 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 very much you have to you have to look at that and i see my students sometimes like because i do a bit of teaching and i'm like mm. oh we're gonna watch his girl friday and they go oh funny is it <laughs> afterwards they're like yes. holding my hand and saying thank you it's a universal rite of passage <laughs> yeah. and I have to say for the record I do fucking hate Antonioni now I did then and I still do a stand by it my 19 year old self was correct no no <laughs> not of many things <laughs> but oh, there's a joke I there mean, isn't it do I love Antonioni yeah. oh how I do not eh? I don't know you you <laughs> languages Anna I just I just took the videos out of the library you you can work that one out and add, add it in but maybe with my do an impression of me so it sounds funny sounds like I did a funny I, I don't you did do a funny Pamela I do languages but I do not know how to do puns so that was precious um but I remember watching M and being a bit you know over it before it even began and I was already, I already had gone through my Rotten.com and my serial killer phase. Oh. Wikipedia was rising. I was all up in those. I was buying books. I was importing books oh to read about oh serial God. killers. I should worry I was that well I well into you. true crime. Yeah, I worry sometimes about me. So you knew um, about Peter Curtin before you watched this? No, I was mostly interested in, um, I wasn't as familiar with the European killers. I was mostly into the American. Okay, ones. okay, fair enough. Yeah, oh yeah, well, they're far away. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it was that. I never, I did not research any, I grew up in Spain. I didn't research any Spanish serial killers until way after sure I had moved Spanish out. I'm sure that Spanish people are nice and don't do that. Yeah, don't Google it though. <laughs> uh, there's some crazy shit out there. Do not recommend. Do you know what? I think actually a friend of mine who's Spanish told me some harrowing stories actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah God. Well, I mean, I'm British, yeah. so, you know. Yeah. Pretty. I know now. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a, a couple Gordon Barnes books on my to be red shelf. Um, but there was, I was absolutely chilled um, by not just 
Howard portrayed the actual killing without showing you the killing. The implication was enough. But in his delight and his clinging on to his own, not innocence, but almost his right to kill as though he he needed to do it and therefore it was okay mm-hmm. for him to do it and it didn't really matter if he did it as long as his impulse was fulfilled yeah and that's it's really disturbing you know and you know mm. we don't we don't give him any credit what is interesting about this film it's what what is oh, okay a gazillion things are interesting in this film what is interesting about that in some ways is the choice of the victims and it's going to sound kind of, so he chooses very innocent victims everyone is innocent no one deserves to be murdered literally no one not even beckett in this film deserves to be murdered by the mob but you know what i mean he mm. chooses it, victims in this narrative that are exemplars of innocence whereas a lot of the serial killers in 1920s Germany were targeting people who are quite vulnerable in society, who people um, think of as being less innocent. And it's just the same old story, decade after decade, country after country, mm-hmm. sex workers mm-hmm. often, mm-hmm. right? Sex yeah. workers or it's people from the gay scene or something. Anything that people, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people looked at, the, you know, the rising crime in you know Berlin in the 20s and and the visible symbol of that would be that there were sex workers on the street so everyone sort of shares this impulse that they should be gone which is horrific but you know Mm -hmm. so this character has none of that he's choosing innocent children who are on their way home from school who have loving mothers at home waiting for them so we have no right to have a single scrap of sympathy for him and when he says that he really tests us because we go well yeah does, does he does he mean that and actually he's now surrounded by a literal baying mob and you know where where do do our sympathies fall as neatly as they should because do we mm. believe in this kangaroo court that he's holding him to account and do we understand that quite clearly he is the victim of some kind of compulsion what how do you punish that how do you punish that well exactly and the film doesn't really give us an answer it says you should look after your children more because we do victim blaming now yeah it basically blames the mothers uh but i i I wouldn't take that too literally i mean i think it's worth saying Mm. this is what the message is because the idea is that this will always happen so we we have Mm. to adjust to it i'm sure growing up in uh, spain uh, where there is no crime you didn't have this but when i was a child you were told so many times about stranger danger you know oh yeah you know this is the only thing we can do is tell children not to go with strangers and tell mothers that and to everything else, they have to pick their children up from school. And how chilling, by the way, is the scene at the school um, doors in this film. We just see um, people waiting outside the school to pick up their children, which would be normal, but we know mm. why they're there. We know why they're there. Bang on yeah. time. It's awful. And there is also there is an innocence that is absolutely destroyed in this film. Not I'm not talking specifically about kind of the, the victims of Beckard, but almost the audience and i and i wonder about this as well i was reading something about kind of how um about children and children growing up in in cities and kind of the lack of say uh community that sometimes occurs in big cities and i grew up in a kind of medium-sized city but there is a really stark change from uh, being able to approach anyone in the street or being able to leave your child with usually older women, being like, you know, you leave it with some local um, random older woman and you just trust them to be able to look after your children. You trust that strangers in the street will always look out for kids, even if they're strangers' kids, because that is what we do. 
And there is an innocent um, trust that particularly that first girl that we see abduct- abducted by Beckard kind of has in him. She would never imagine that this man who buys her, uh, gives her a balloon or gives her buys her a treat would ever do anything other than have her best interests at heart. And seeing him abuse that trust is almost more chilling than the implication of what it goes on in in the darkness afterwards. Yeah, even with this, with the posters everywhere, you know, with the with the knowledge that the killer is on the mm. loose, he manages to abduct another girl as well, and mm. and she again, she looks at him so innocently, you know, that this is fine. But there are a couple of other things that I think are really really scary. There's another little mm-hmm. girl who approaches an elderly man and ask him for the time by the time he's finished telling her the time he's surrounded by a mob who are like oh you have what what are you talking to her why are you talking to her almost by the oh you know this is unfair because we know that's not beckett we know that's not the killer but by the time they've done with him you almost feel like why is he so keen to talk to this little girl why didn't he just run away and we've already had another conversation where some quite rich men are joking about oh well they'll be after you because i've seen the way that you look at young girls on stairwells and stairways and you know it's true you know you know some older chaps do look at young girls in a way that is not i would follow them because they would like to look at them and you know there is there's this sense that you know there's beckett but there's a whole world of danger out there and i think the the photographs when we see the children playing when they're standing almost still and there's so much space around them because they're so unprotected we have this kind of um, high angle camera you see these children they're so vulnerable they're ready to be taken you're not they're not mm. in a safe group, you know. They're not like, yeah, I grew up in small towns, really, and or villages even, and, you know, yeah, you you would know that you could go into a certain shop or you could ask a passing person. You know, I got lost once in Birkenhead Shopping Centre and an old lady found me and took me back to my mum, you know. And, you know, mm. no, Birkenhead is not a... It, it's not the place you want to lose your kid. But still, it was fine. <laughs> you know, but they are, they are entirely at the mercy of this very hostile world. And, you know, if we know anything about Germany in the 1930s and Berlin in the 1930s, it felt like a hostile world for everyone. And so mm. everyone's fears are projected onto these innocent young girls you know, who just want to get home from school. So talk to me about how the film um, deploys all these different... Uh, perspectives of the different strata of the city because we've not just got the parents and the mothers we've got the underworld we've got the um the police uh we've got the kind of the criminal bosses but also their underlings we've got kind of the uh what do they call them the beggar society Society, yeah yeah so you've got that you have the yeah the underworld the organized crime i was reading about them apparently the the organized crime units in berlin at that time their front was wrestling clubs so they were pretending to yes. be wrestling club. I didn't know this. I was just that's great. Like, just like wholesome, strong men. But they would also pick your pocket and actually send out several people to do it. So we have this wonderful whole depiction of a city. And it's really interesting how many early sound films are these great city films from like Blackmail mm-hmm. to Under the Roofs of Paris to M. Of course, it's all very chilling and dark in this. We see all these layers of society. We see we see rich people. We see the the police and and as you say the the criminals the the mothers and the and the the beggars and we see that all these people are disparate but can be brought together one cause can unite them we have conversations that are started by the police and that are finished overlapping sentences by the criminals we have this sense that there is one common purpose although 
And this is quite terrifying. It's the it's the underworld organisations that manage to catch Beckett before the police do. They get there before the sort of police work will do it, um, because there is this power in the crowd, power in the mm-hmm. crowd which becomes more and more terrifying. Actually, you think it's going to save us because um, we're going to expel the serial killer, but actually it becomes this quite uh, sinister force uh, where everyone's hatred of the sin- serial killer turns into the you know, baying violent mob. And, you know, we've spoken about everyone and only tangentially about Becker, mm-hmm. but how how does First Lang introduce him? Because before we actually meet him or see him, we see him, but only through the sound of the whistling, through the shadows, um, through people talking about him. He's a monster before we meet him. We are terrified to meet him, but we know we have to. You know, we know this is all we have to do. The entire city wants to find out who is he, who is the murderer. That's what the posters say, you know. Uh, he, we see the shadow of him on the poster, which is a great trope. I don't know who did it first. Mm-hmm. Um, that This film did not do it first. Uh, of the shadow of the killer over the wanted poster. Um, and he has this leitmotiv. So, I mean, one of the things that makes this such a great film as an early sound film is that we use all the best techniques of silent cinema yes. and the best techniques of sound cinema. So Peter Lorre Beckett whistles the Hall of the Mountain King and it's completely incongruous, but we know that that, that now is the sound of the killer. It's actually not Peter mm-hmm. Lorre whistling because he couldn't whistle, which makes me feel <laughs> like kindred with him. But it's Fritz Lang. The director himself is... is is the one who plays the killer on the soundtrack. Was it actually it's Fritz? Fritz? Yeah, I mean, although maybe he just a credit, but I think it's Fritz, and it's beautiful whistling. Um, mm-hmm. So we and we see this man who's harried and persecuted, who's worried. We see a man who's quite terrified because he knows he's going to get caught sooner or later. And the film also, I I wonder if this is the first one. I'm sure maybe Fritz Lang would say that it was, <laughs> but I don't know if it is in the history of cinema of cinema. We spend an awful lot of time with Beckard by himself mm. and then with Beckard pleading and trying to escape. So he's almost framed as a victim of the mob, mm. even though he is the killer. He is the monster of the film. Yeah. I mean, you know, and we, we have enough information to know that his murders are horrific. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the police say, so we all remember what we saw, you know, and it's obviously mm-hmm. terrible. But yeah, no, no, we spend a lot of time with him because I think... Um, Fritz Lang was interested in that criminal psychology. I mean, this film is written by his wife, Thea von Harbu, who wrote like so many of his films. Uh, they took very different paths in life. You, you know, one chose Hollywood and one chose the Nazi party. But, you know, she wrote these amazing screenplays for him. And they are interested in the criminal psychology. He'd been making the Dr. Mamuse films where you have this incredibly charismatic, dangerous, shape-shifting uh, criminal who... who hides behind a shadowy organization but also puts himself in full view so we're we're interested in how these devils operate already and this one we say you know what is the lowest crime and therefore what is the kind of lowest kind of villain and we have this scared scruffy harassed beaten man who has this i mean peter lorre it's his first starring role and if you don't know Mm. what peter lorre looks like i mean kind of looks like a serial killer Oh, that's so mean! No, 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 no. He he's, he has a quite disturbing look. He has this vulnerability about him. He's a hunched, sort of stocky guy with these bulging eyes, uh, you know. And you know, he's a fine, fine actor. Uh, and it, he's a wonderful, a wonderful actor. actor. And he, you know, he had a really difficult life. And you know, I don't 
you know, and 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 he also had to work with Fritz Lang, which is hard enough. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. I will ask you about that yeah. later. But wait, why did he have a hard life? I'm not super familiar with his um, life story. Well, he had an accident, and then he got addicted to the morphine. Oh. So a lot of the time when he's working in Hollywood, you know, he's either um, in the crisis of that addiction or trying to overcome it. And, you know, I think he drank mm. a lot. I think I don't, you know. Um, so you see, actually, a lot of his best roles, you see, you know, one of the first things he did when he went to Hollywood is he played a character that's very like uh, Beckett in M, which is you know, he played Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment. And if you want to see mm. how Hollywood adapts crime and punishment, as someone who I know is, is familiar with the Russian classics, I, I encourage you to take a stiff drink first. But his performance oh of Raskolnikov is, of course, wonderful because he has that haunted look. Uh, you know, so, he, you know, even, even when you get him in silk stockings later, you know, there's always something a little bit harassed about Peter Lorre. And, you know, he's wonderful in that way. But he can do comedy. He's very sympathetic and very pitiable. Well, I think pitiable is the right word. And you know when you said that he looks like a serial killer? Because they look like remember, everybody else. <laughs> yeah, but there's something... Re the thing that upsets me about him in this role the most is that he looks almost childlike mm -hmm. in some scenes. He's got this He's got this roundness mm -hmm. about him, you know, which makes him kind of such a different image of the kind of almost phantom-like Cesare from Caligari, who looks like a very angular shadow. He's all long limbs and, you know, really skinny and muscular and with those deep, dark set eyes. And Laurie is this like very almost puppy looking oh, creature puppy. very short very round he looks he's not much taller than the girl that he's abducting and which makes it even more upsetting the fact that he looks so unassuming and unthreatening i think you know you've the, you're the one with the shelf of really disturbing books anna so i don't know too much about the <laughs> serial killer psychology but there's one way of sort of thinking about it which i think comes up again and again is this slight sense of arrested development you know why mm -hmm. you know little boys little girls you know will you know kill ants on the pavement you know they will they will tease puppy dogs before someone tells them that it's mean to do that you know they will do things that are quite cruel and then you say no think about the feelings of this other creature and they say oh yes i do appreciate that and you become a rounded individual i have summarized many years of child development you know and obviously the serial killer sort of doesn't quite get to that phase and and mm. there's also that slightly th thing of you know why does this person want to spend so much time with young people and very often chillingly the victims of serial killers are are quite young people you know and mm. you can explain it away by saying oh well he's just quite young at heart oh he also likes those comics yeah no he doesn't he wants to kill them and so you know you have this thing it's both the mask for his crimes and also perhaps an expression of why he hasn't developed past the stage where you realize that if you mm. hurt other people you hurt other people they have feelings too and you can't just you know whatever gratification you might take from whether it's punching someone on the nose or you know doing something more dastardly you know you can't give in to those impulses i don't have mm. impulses to punch anyone on the nose or, or to kill anyone by the way just i'm talking theoretically <laughs> just for the record i'm, I'm such an unviolent person <laughs> i know you are because you've seen me provoked anna <laughs> And even when provoked, you were the most polite person I've ever seen provoked. 
<laughs> but you mentioned earlier this really guttural scream that he does. And I want to talk a little bit about when Becker is apprehended. Mm-hmm. Um, because when he knows he's cornered, he really behaves almost like like an animal who knows, who's frightened, uh, frightened of being caught. Um, but when he's apprehended by the underworld um, and marked with that um, chalk M mm. on his back, um, M for murderer, though I'm not entirely sure how you say murderer in German. Uh, someone will correct me, I'm sure. <laughs> but t- talk to me about kind of the the performance of Peter Laurie, particularly when it's all on him and his face and he's like squirming, trying to <sighs> convince them to let him go. Well, you know, Fritz Lang said that he didn't screen test Peter Laurie because he saw him and knew he was correct. And I'm like, mm-hmm. really, Fritz? I mean, I'm just, I never believe anything. Obviously, it's not very helpful, is it? Because this <laughs> performance, this alone, I mean, you just have to milk this out as one of the great screen performances of history just for this scene because he mm. expresses something that's so raw and so shameful. The idea that he's sort of, you know, he's so terrified of a group of people. He's killing children, but he's terrified of a group of people who are professing to be uh, practicing some kind of law. There's like this kangaroo court. They even give him a defense lawyer who's clearly disgusted by his task, understandably. Mm. Um, he thinks there's a way that he can appeal to their pity, say that it's not fair. What does he think? That he's going to get away with it? He must know that he's going to be caught at some point. And we are aware that the police are also on his path at this point. So we know even more than he does that he's got no way out of this. Um, the really there's something really shameful about the way that he seems terrified about the fact that they might kill him you know because mm-hmm. i mean i don't really believe that anyone deserves capital punishment but you've got to say i mean they put him out of his misery and you know he must feel at some level when he he claims to feel that he doesn't want to kill people he must know that what he does is is terrible you know and he has to face the mothers of the the victims so i think that you know we both pity him because his pain is so raw and you see the way he was slumped down those stairs. I think Fritz Lang threw him down the oh, stairs. God. You know, he's clinging on to his shreds of his argument, shreds of his sanity. He's looking for any way out. He, he really, really tries to avoid it. And, you know, it's, it, at the same time, we, we're realising that he's sort of baser than we thought. Uh, I do think the way that he performs those lines, don't want to, must, don't want to, must, is utterly chilling. The idea that anyone exists in our society that's in that psychological position just will keep you awake at night. There is something deeply, deeply unsettling to, when you look at that performance, how almost unnoticeably his eyes and his demeanor changes Mm. as he goes from trying to justify himself by saying that he's consumed by these thoughts and these urges to then describing how he feels when he is killing in the process of it, yeah, it's terrifying. And all that momentum that's been building to, we want him to be caught, we want mm. him to be caught, we want them to find Becca, we want the, the underworld mob with their very canny group of beggars. Can we just say the beggars do win the day? Like, thanks. Yes, yeah, they do. It's a bit of political satire here, social commentary, we love it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that then goes into a little bit, I think we want to hear him talk about it. I think we want to, we want to understand. If he says something, will it make us understand? It doesn't quite, because mm. I don't think any of us can quite meet him there in that place uh, but yeah it's there's such 
there's such a sort of pace to the whole film and to this scene and the fact that you know it's still not the complete version that we've still got bits missing is, is quite distressing but you know you wonder you wonder what else what further horrors there were in this movie what are the bits missing and how come they're missing? I don't know. I think um, when it came out, it was considered a bit too much. And so things were cut and we've had some things reinstated. I don't know what is missing. But I do know that a lot of the mm. initial reviews said that it was quite slow. You know, this painstaking um, uh, shadowing of the police case and how they, they find him slowly, slowly, bit by bit, three backward steps mm. and then one forward bit. So maybe that's what they're referring to. But maybe there's there's more to it. Um, but this this final sequence when he's in the old distillery, mm, that that uh, that moves at a pace that is quite terrifying, and then it ends so abruptly. Yeah, with a warning yeah. for the mothers of children. Mm. And what what do you know what the reaction to M at the time was, and how it kind of gained this um, its place in in film history? Well, it put the heebie-jeebies of the Nazis. That's for sure. So we like it for that. I think when the film was in production, or, you know, they, it was going to be called The Murderer Amongst Us, and the Nazis mm-hmm. were really worried because they assumed that that referred to them. Which, yeah, you know, you've seen the yeah. Mitchell and Webb sketch about knowing who the baddies. Uh, um, um, you know, uh, they changed the name quite a few times. Yeah, and then when they, they saw it, they didn't like it, I think because of the power of the mob and because of the dark themes. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, the, the Nazi control of the... the film industry which has come in sort of properly a bit later um but they're already looking at what films they approve of and they don't approve of this is not what they want they want entertainment they want Aryan entertainment they want a hero and there's no heroes in this film and it was it was good for uh for uh fritz lang he went and he made another film and he attracted the attention of all the right people which is to say goebbels who said come and stay and you can run ufa you know, you, you made this film, it's so good. You can run Ufa, even though Metropolis had been a flop and all that kind of thing. And that's, he said, when he decided to run. Which, you know, you know, it, it was always going to happen at some point. You know, he doesn't mm-hmm. didn't want to be complicit in that. So this was actually, you know, a real triumph for him as a, a first sound film. And um, how does he, you know, you mentioned before that this film uses both the best techniques of sound film, of sound filmmaking, and the best techniques of silent filmmaking. How does it bridge that gap? Well, we have this incredibly visual story. There's so many, I mean, you know, this is a film that if it didn't have such a momentum, you'd be wanting to pause it so often. There's these wonderful shots where we see uh, Beckett sort of trapped by geometric reflections in a shop window, where you see Mm -hmm. these panoramas of the city, where you see the sort of beggars moving as they follow their prey, the great, great tracking sequences, long tracking shots. So we have this wonderful visual storytelling, the chalk M, could not be better. And the way that Peter Lorre looks at his own shoulder, I don't know how long they spent, like, you know, just lining that up. Mm-hmm. You know, he looks at this being the marked man. So have the visual storytelling, like the death of Elsie at the beginning of the film, um, uh, which is, you know, you see purely just, you know, the, the discarded balloon and the discarded ball, and it's more chilling than anything else. But we also use sound in a really interesting way. Sound to give us these sort of stark images of the city and it's very selective sound. So you'll hear voices and you'll hear noises, but very often you hear nothing at all. There's no music, there's no comfort here and it's mm-hmm. uncanny. It's like almost watching a diagram of a killer being caught because there are long sequences when he's being um, chased where there's no sound in the city at all. And there's this absence that you feel everywhere. The absence of, well, you know, the absence of the children 
you create a lot of background noise in a city, but the absence of security, absence of people out on the street because they're all terrified, because they're indoors, because mm -hmm. of this, this killer. And the, he amplifies the silence as well as amplifying key sounds, such as the, the whistled Hall of the Mountain King. And um, mm. then we culminate with some of the greatest noise ever recorded uh, 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 in film, which is uh, Peter Lorre's screams. This is where I insert Peter Lorre screaming. Oh my god, please. I, you know, I really, really wanted to be in that punk band and just come on stage. <laughs> you can still do it. I think, you know, M is such a great film that you have the urge to tell everyone, no, but you should really watch this. You should really watch it. I actually managed, yeah, I watched it with my partner on Friday night. Mm. He was quite keen, but I think it was better than he expected. Because, you know, he's seen my oldie worldy films mm. before. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he is a big CSI fan. It is CSI Berlin in a way. It is CSI Berlin. We, it's interesting to see the techniques and the mm -hmm. mistakes of the law enforcement at work. Uh, yeah, the the mistake with the table and the window ledge. Mm -hmm. When they say, we're looking for a red pencil and we're looking for an old table and they don't find the red pencil, they don't find the wooden table, but they do find enough clues. Like, you know, the cl clues aren't like they are in like children's detective stories. It isn't like we're looking for a man with a moustache and one side of his face shaved. It's not like that, you know. It's, th it's these odd little details. If you remember the brand of cigarettes that you found, mm -hmm. you know, at a child's corpse, that's what's going to lead you to the killer. Ugh, even that sentence is disgusting. I'm sorry, none of my sentences are disgusting. <laughs> Not true. We have to do something about this. I mean, it's it's weird. I'm such a sort of non-violent person, and sometimes mm. when I'm talking about films like this, and I'm like, well, you see, well, you, when you had that first murder, and then when you have the baying violent mob, and you think, gosh, why is this my life? <laughs> I do think that there's something about serial killer films and they kind of do traverse kind of the worlds of the more acceptable psychological horrors or psychological mm. thrillers and detective stories and crime films with the less agreeable horror world and obviously you know this is coming from a person who very much refutes the idea that horror is disagreeable and horror is for everyone but you know what I mean. Yeah I think there's an idea I mean serial killers very fun from my limited understanding of their psychology which comes entirely from films do think that they're cleverer than other people that they're mm -hmm. getting away with it and i think that's quite the appealing mm -hmm. screen character of a serial killer um now there's a difference between being a serial killer and being like a spree killer you know this is the idea that these crimes are motivated by something complex whether it's the urge or whether it's some sort of deluded theory there's something intellectual about serial killing and i, I hate to say that or cerebral perhaps about serial Serial killing rather than about sort of the mindless violence that you might have with um you know a, a marauding animal mm. or you know perhaps everyone's terrible low rent imagination of a slasher film when they say oh it's not just a slasher film they've obviously got one in their mind they've got one that they saw that mm -hmm. they thought was terrible <laughs> you know it's not that mindless violence it's almost too mindful violence and i actually think that this is what makes beckard and m stand out for me even after all these years for visiting it is that he doesn't fit as neatly into this idea of 
a serial killer who outsmarts everyone, who is driven by like some deep-seated psychology. It seems to be so animalistic mm-hmm. and so completely kind of in unthinking urges. Even when he writes the letter to the press, yes. it's like this childish scrawl, yes. you know, I'm not done. You yes. know, they won't print my letters, but I'll just tell you I'm not done. Mm-hmm. It's not saying, you know, oh, you'll never catch me. He's not dropping complicated clues that Morgan Freeman has to go to the library to decode. Um, you know, when he when he's horrified, when he's unnerved, he goes and he has like two strong drinks mm-hmm. in a bar and he looks like a child drinking that. He's not mm-hmm. in control at all. He's, you know, he's completely flummoxed and flustered. So, yeah, he's not the very mindful, but there is something of that. We see that he has a, an MO, as they say in the mm-hmm. cop shows, uh, and we see that he does have some desire to communicate about his crimes, but he's not, uh, he's not like a kind of Dr. Mabuse type criminal. Mm. And this is kind of um, leading on to one of my last questions about the film. Where does M and Beckard as a villain sit within the cinema of Fritz Lang? Ooh, that's not a question that I was necessarily thinking of, but he does have these men who are just like led into danger yeah. because he's the, you know, he's, he for all the things that Fritz Lang did, and I mean, oof, we haven't got time, he, he really was the master of film noir. And, you know, mm-hmm. you have the, you have the hero, hero who was walking further and further into danger. So whether that's whether you're following the serial killer or whether you are the serial killer, we have someone who's like steeping more and more and more in violence, you know, that kind of big heat kind of thing. And he does have those moments like in the big heat where people acknowledge that there is there is something in common on both sides of the law, you know, that, you know, there isn't the world isn't just goodies and baddies. The kind of world is all villains and some of them are pretending better than others. Shouldn't laugh at that. That I, I'm laughing at the beautiful sentence, though, and at the terrifying <laughs> sentiment. Yeah, I mean, you know, I watch a lot of Gloria Graham movies, and I'm, <laughs> I, I just, I don't know. You know, can you imagine how you know the the silent films and the film noir and that M? And I was like, well, there we have found the perfect film that combines everything. Uh, Fritz Lang's films are so rigorous and so controlled that you always know that you're being taken somewhere very specific Mm. and this film takes you around the streets of berlin in this very rigorous pattern and towards becker and his capture in a very rigorous pattern Uh, everything else is quite random everything else is a mess you know (laughs) you know the the reality of the story is that you know that children are being plucked at random and how even with a uh, you know a cavalcade of watchful beggars can you find the one evil man in the full city it's impossible, but you know Fritz Lang will lead you there. He sees people, walks people into danger all the time. And Victims of their own desires, human desire. I mean, that was the film, right? Human desire. Yeah, that was the film, but also I kind of, I, I kind of want to refute the idea that murdering children is a human desire. <laughs> I mean, you know, what is the human desire here that is so dangerous that what you know the fact that you know we're all on the right side of the law, we all think that he's bad, mm. but so many of us would have found ourselves in the distillery dispensing rough justice. I think that's the really that that's is the thing that's that really terrifying the, for the audience. Yeah, yeah, that is the darkness, and it's yeah. not it's not as simple as saying mob mentality. I think it's almost um, a very violent sense of justice. Mm. And you know, we can absolutely seen that in my lifetime in this country when we had like the sort of the sun campaign about paedophiles you know it began it's a campaign that sort of gathers and gathers momentum because people know that they can 
they can get on one side of this and we all feel the same way about these crimes yeah. and you know you get to the point where people are using the word name and shame and uh, perhaps more uh enthusiastically mm. than uh than is always warranted in every single case you know um it's it's yeah we all like a we all like a sense of right and wrong but when we cling to those ideas sometimes we stray into the wrong and wrapping both of these films together where do Casablanca you... <laughs> yes we're moving on to Casablanca, another notorious serial killer movie. Well, everybody knows. There, was, there was a lot of killing happening. There was. Yeah. Um, but where do you see the influence of, I mean, they're very different films, but where do you see the influence of Caligari and or M on subsequent crime slash horror films? I mean, I think M is everywhere. Yeah. I think M is everywhere in these films. I think, you know, if you're making a serial killer film and you haven't watched it, or crime film, and you haven't seen how this deploys all the crime fighting forces and the criminal elements of the city, if you are making a film about a city and you haven't seen how this gives you a sense of the city from a soundstage so brilliantly, I I think... um, I, th- I think you're missing out. And although I don't think that Fritz Lang did it the first, I know he didn't, that scene of the shadow of the killer falling across the mm. wanted poster, that's become a trope. And I think it probably came from from M. I think... So, you th- as a, let's let's just give Fritz the credit. Why not? I, d- I know he didn't do it first. Do you, do you remember who did it first? Well, I know that it's in Pandora's box. <gasps> oh. But we can talk about that later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, probably before, who knows. Um, with Caligari, it is this visual reference point for and everything from paintings to pop videos to films. I mean, you'll have you'll have people looking a little bit like these characters. You'll have a jaggedy background, a lot of stage design, you know, just harks back entirely to this kind of expressionism. And where do we know this expressionism from? We know it from this this most famous of all the expressionist designed films, mm. you know, this is the famous look. So we see the influence of Caligari, but I'm not sure. I, you know, I think you might know better than me where I see that in subsequent killer films. Well, I'm curious to discover that. Mm. Because as I go through the season and these films, I'm going to be looking at the relationship between them. Mm. I'd be interested to see where it really does come out because I think influential is a word that's really easy to apply to mm-hmm. Caligari because we know that that look is so powerful you've seen it reproduced and painted and, and referred to but where it actually comes out in other films I'd be interested to see whereas I think that if you look at other sort of hunt for a killer films you're going to see the fingerprints the DNA of um, oh the fingerprint scene is so good the fingerprints yes. of um everywhere well I my instinct is that Caligari Caligari's influence is in the structure is in the the plot twist, the layering of the narratives, the twisting of the perspectives, um, particularly when we're t- thinking about unreliable um, unreliable leads, you know, especially yeah. unreliable figures of authority that are presented to us as kind of the the pious or the um, trustworthy ones or the killers that look like killers, you know, look suspicious mm-hmm. but aren't are actually quite harmless in the end. There's a lot of that in serial killer movies. Unreliable leaders, unreliable killers and unreliable narrators. Like nothing. It all falls away from your feet. And that's my experience of watching Caligari. I watch it. I'm enthralled. I'm thinking this. It's almost like five minutes later, it's gone. 
It's gone. It's passed. It's a very greasy film. It slips right past me. Have you ever seen any of the remakes of either of these films? No, I haven't, actually. I've seen lots of bad accompaniments for Caligari mm-hmm. and Bad Prince of Caligari, mm-hmm. if that counts. But no, I've not seen, like, Joseph Losey's M or anything. I'm really curious about Joseph Losey's M, which I think is from the early 60s, if I'm not mistaken, maybe early 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a version of Caligari with Peter Gallagher and Mikhail Baryshnikov as Cesare made in the 80s that was screened once at Sundance and has never seen the light of day since and I've only seen little clips of it online I'm sure there's a copy somewhere on the interwebs I am so curious because it's exactly Barishnikov. I mean, that's Barishnikov. when you just find an actor and think, who would they play? What classic role would they play? And you think, well, let's get Barishnikov to play all the Conrad White roles. Yeah. Exactly. But particularly that one. Interesting. Get a dancer to play this role that is pretty much like a dance role. Yeah, it's all about the body. Mm. The, but he's got that face, Barishnikov. He does. And those Love big that. blue eyes. I mean, I don't think he wears the Cesare makeup in the film from the stills that I've seen, but still... That is a man that could look both harmless and creepy, depending on the light. Yeah. Oh, and he has such great control. I mean, it could be one of those where there's a great performance in a bad film, but who knows? Who knows? I'm open to both. Pamela, thank you so much. Always a delight to have you on. Always a a pleasure to speak to you um, and always deeply humbling uh, (laughs) to listen to your sentences. It's always so lovely to talk to you, and I will, you know, I keep, I keep thinking, I don't, I can't go on this horror podcast. I know nothing about horror, but you find the horror within me, and for that, I'm truly grateful. <laughs> and maybe slightly perturbed, but you know, that's that's the price you pay for knowing me. I'm a nice girl, really. You and are. I think, I think you are too, no matter what you say. Ah, uh, yeah, regrettably, I am. <laughs> Thank you. Are. <laughs> Just think how successful we would be if we weren't. I think about it daily, Pamela. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying. You know, when I said to my students that I was going to go and record an episode of Final Girls, mm. they got very excited. And this one girl looked at me and did like the like a heart symbol oh. with her hands. And I was like, yeah, because it is quite lovely, despite, you know, the gore. Yeah, that's so sweet. <laughs> 